You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is The Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. Back after a three-week hiatus, supposed to be two weeks, normally three-week hiatus. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The thing we're reading today is the fifth and sixth chapter of Professor Alois Mlambo's book, The History of Zimbabwe. And this will cover the period from the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland up until independence in 1980, which is very late. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Going to be brief, but up front, I should say that the school year is starting for me. I'm a teacher. The school year is starting, so I'll be teaching AP Stats for the first time in a couple of years. So there's been a lot of preparation. And the school year is starting for my own studies because I'm going back to school for a year. So I'm going to be pretty busy. So with the podcast, what we're going to do is once a month, and it's going to be all fiction for the next 12 months. So once a month and fiction. I mean, I might slip in some, you know, if uh, especially because it's going to be all fiction, I might slip in some, uh, some quick reads that I just blast through in my free time. But in general, the plan will be once a month and uh, just novels or short stories or maybe a collection of essays here or there, so creative nonfiction, but nothing like what I did this summer, which was Andre Brock Jr.'s Distributed Blackness, written by a professor, and then this history of Zimbabwe, which is a nice, succinct history and really just covers the last 120 years of Zimbabwe in great detail. Uh, Well, not in in, in insane amount of detail. I mean, there's just too much stuff, but I won't be reading something that academic for the next year. So this podcast will be fiction. It'll be once a month and I will be studying like crazy this year. So I'd have a little bit less time to study on the podcast. But uh, when we are here, we're going to have a good time. Oh, and I should say that we do have one more nonfiction podcast coming because we have to finish off the history of Zimbabwe. And um, this has actually been a really, so yeah, let's just get into it. Um, this has been a really fun read for me and might eventually, uh, well, I mean, fun's probably the wrong word, but a really important read for me and might eventually lead to something that uh, that I do because I'm, I'm getting my degree in data science. So this might be what I could do a project in, you know, if, if, uh, if that were accepted by my advisor. This is at least an idea I have is to research my original premise, which is what happened to Zimbabwe's life expectancy. And so that would be taken into account all kinds of factors and stuff. So this might be something that I pursue down the line. So yeah, this book has been very enriching from that sense. And last week we covered from prehistory to uh, 1960, thereabout, you know, kind of some overlap from what we're going to cover today. And then now we're covering basically the Federation years, which I just mentioned, and then there was a Declaration of Independence declared by white Rhodesia, you know, to preempt Britain trying to give them to be uh, desegregated. And then there was a long protracted struggle and then independence in 1980. So that's the basic timeline. And I mean, this is a 
you know, the point of this podcast, if you've never listened before, is mainly just to talk about what I find interesting. So not a history podcast. I'm not a historian. I'm just going through and, and talking about some some points that I find interesting. So there's one major through line I'm going to talk about today. And then there's, and which was also, you know, part of the original premise of why I was interested in this. And then there's going to be just little tidbits that I find interesting, you know. And then I tried to research these things as much as I could, but it's a, it's a lot. So that's why I was saying that perhaps this could be something I do as my, like, capstone project. Because there's, you know, a thousand different directions to go in. Many different players doing many different things. And uh, it would be absurd to say, oh yeah, could I cover that all in three weeks? Well, of course not. All I could do was just read the chapter, chapters, I read them both twice, uh, you know, well, two t- one time all the way through, and then the second time going through all of my highlights and notes and stuff. So it's just a lot of stuff to get to, but let's get to it. So the Federation years, uh, so this is chapter five, the Federation years covering the period of 53 to 63. And this was Rhodesia and Nyasaland, uh, also known as the Central African Federation, and it collapsed in it's and so Rhodesia and Nyasaland was like part of Rhodesia and then part of other countries that were like called Northern Rhodesia or Southern Rhodesia and stuff like that. Zambia was in there and there was another country that I'm forgetting. But yeah, this is from 53 to 63 and it collapsed as independence loomed. Uh, it was heavily opposed from the outset. So Professor Mlambo points out that only Africans who are for the Central African Federation were upper class black Rhodesians. He really goes in on upper class black Rhodesians a lot in this chapter, really points out that, you know, takes great pains to point out that there were black people in the police force. There were black people who had gone to, for instance, um, missionary schools and so already had a leg up in education and social standing. And they were, especially during this time, pretty good with just like, oh, yeah, we'll keep the status quo as long as you give us our kickback. So, yeah, all right, you have all the people, uh, all of the black Africans, which is to say, you know, 90% of the country or whatever, living on African reserves. Um, Great. We got no beef with that. Just let me get my nice cushy job in the capital or my nice cushy job doing this or doing that. And we can all be good. And we can slowly work towards, uh, you know, equality and stuff like that. So they, they kind of... Professor Mlambo points out, and he does this several times throughout chapter five and six too, points out that there was this, I guess let's call it like an elite liberal faction of people who, and I don't like this term I've talked about before, but who adhere to the concept of respectability politics will save us. Like, we'll show the white Rhodesians, the colonizers, that we can behave civilly. And in doing that, they'll slowly come to see our humanity and then they'll stop um, setting up these systems to persecute us, you know, uh, forever. And this was obviously misguided. And I guess, you know, to to their defense, did they actually have a chance to uh, test this hypothesis? Did they did did black Rhodesians wait a hundred years? Um, you know dressing and talking and acting exactly like they were quote-unquote supposed to as if that's what the white Rhodesians were doing too as if you know from from the uh, couple of novels I've read it doesn't sound like white Rhodesians were exactly doing that either you know uh, but but 
at any rate, did they get to test this hypothesis? Would the would the colonizers have eventually just said, you know what, you guys are all right. We had you wrong. They didn't get to test that hypothesis, so uh, maybe they weren't wrong. But okay, so he uh, he talks about that a lot, and then he talks about the other coin, the other side of the coin for um, elites and the overeducated, and he brings up uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah a lot, the former president of Ghana. Not that he's like he brings him up praising him. Um, he was educated abroad, but he, and like, like Julius Nairi, they were Pan-Africanists. And so they had a completely different, uh, reaction to it. So he makes a point of differentiating between the elites and the non-elites, but he also makes a point in differentiating between, you know, Nairi and, and, uh, and Kruma and being educated abroad that puts them into the the bin of the elites. He also makes a point of differentiating that not all of the elites thought in the same way. So there you go. And, um, so, okay. So that was happening then. And then as pressure mounted, so from the outset, they were already, uh, upset with this federation, but then pressure began mounting as de decolonization swept across Africa. So, and not just decolonization. This is one of the things that I found cool. There was also influence from, uh, America and it's a, it's a little bit earlier than the full on decolonization movement, but still, uh, professor Mlambo mentions that in, he, he writes, uh, Ethiopianism in Zimbabwe was inspired partly by black nationalist ideas filtering in from the African diaspora across the Atlantic ocean, especially those associated with Marcus Garvey and his United Negro Improvement Association, an organization that flourished in the United States in the 1920s, which preached African pride and self-sufficiency and the doctrine of Africa for the Africans. Also influential was the American Methodist Church AME, founded by a black American Richard Allen in protest against white racism in the church in the 19th century and brought to Southern Africa by AME missionaries in the 1890s. So even though those things, those two movements are founded in the 20s and the 1890s respectively, they stretched up into the 60s and had influence in Zimbabwe. So that's cool. And then another factory points out, so that's, so now we have two factors, right? We have the, or three factors, really. We have the just original, like, we don't like this thing. Okay. That's number one. Then we have the second, um, the, uh, decolonization movement spreading through Africa, right? Which are acting against the Federation because that's also like, why should we have a Federation when what we want is black rule? We want one man, one vote, and if we have one man, one, man, one vote, we're going to have black rule, right? And then the third thing would be this outside, uh, you know, African diaspora influences. And then the fourth thing Alois points out is World War II exposing the hypocrisy of fighting for someone else's freedom. And this reminded me a lot of the American GIs uh, coming home after both world wars, World War One and World War II. Walter Mosley kind of writes about this in his book. Not kind of, I mean... Um, his, his detective early, early Rollins is a World War II veteran, but coming home and then experiencing racism and being like, well, why did I fight in this war? So he talks about that. And he also mentions the fact that Africans had gone out and they had seen that uh, there were just regular ass white folks, basically. Um, so two passages. One, he says, African anger increased when after the war, returning soldiers were rewarded with farms, white soldiers. Whereas African soldiers received a pat on the back and were shoved into the crowded African reserves in which they had lived before the war. 
And then the other passage he talks about, uh, they had never met working class or poor white uh, people. They'd only met, you know, in general, they'd only been dealing with people in colonial positions. So uh, positions of power. So yeah, so all of that, all of those factors matter, right? Those those all took um, some part in shaping why the independence movement kicked off after 1963. But here's where we get to the through line that I was talking about. This is the whole reason that I wanted to go back and research more. So I'd done the life expectancy little data set experiment thing and then started reading about Zimbabwe because what are the causes that led to Mugabe? And I think for people who haven't, who don't know much about Zimbabwe, including myself, the only thing I know about Zimbabwe is land distribution. But I didn't know redistribution. Um, but I didn't know why or how Mugabe came to power, not really. And the fact that he came to power because of land seems to be, to me, uh, seems to be important to tell the story of the fact that he came to power because of land, then because of land redistribution, uh, all of these sanctions were levied against him and white people left the country. And then because of that, or maybe not because of that, but after that, the life expectancy or during that, the life expectancy dropped and then rose again. So all these things seem to be interrelated, right? Some way, somehow. So that's why I backed up in the first place. And once we back up in the first place in last week's, or excuse me, in the podcast three weeks ago, we found out about uh, land being the number one factor from the get-go and how Africans were, you know, put on, like we just read, African reserves and all the good arable land was given to white folks. Well, now we're in 1953 through 1963, this 10-year period, and Professor Mlambo lays out all of the different... Uh, factors that led to the independence movement. But then he says, and this is now we're getting to the formation of parties that will eventually become the protest parties that will lead to independence. He talks about the first one here. Uh, so I'll just read this passage. The African National Council became the first African national political party in the country. The Southern Rhodesian African National Congress, uh, as it was called then. Joshua Nakoma was elected leader of the party, the membership of which was estimated at 6,000 in 1958, May 1958, and which popularly became known as simply the ANC. All right, now here's the important part. The ANC gained rapid popularity throughout the country by mobilizing the Africans against the recently established Native Land Husbandry Act, destocking unpopular government-sponsored soil conversation policies, the Native Affairs Department and its Native Commissioners and government-appointed chiefs. So it all comes back to the land. It all comes back to the land. Um, and so uh, that, that you know, alone seems like a clue that um, this outweighed the other factors, right? None of those other things led to mobilization on the ground, right? It wasn't, it wasn't uh, just a general displeasure that they didn't have a vote. It wasn't... Um, World War II veterans coming back. It wasn't elites trying to throw non-elites under the bus. It wasn't, what was the other one? It wasn't uh, just meeting the fact that there were poor white people. It wasn't being exposed to the idea of Garvey. It eventually, you know, comes back down to land. So, okay. So then we get um, from the ANC, uh, we eventually get ZANU and ZAPU, which were the two parties, and there was a third party in 1980, but we eventually get ZANU and ZAPU, and Mugabe comes from one of these parties. So let's go through that timeline really quickly in like two sentences. 
basically the ANC gave way to the NDP and it, uh, which was banned. So the NDP was banned. So these are, you know, are all banned, right? That was the, the Rhodesian government's tactic. So the ANC gave way to the NDP and the NDP was banned because of rioting and property damage, which sounds very familiar, especially this is in the sixties in America. Martin Luther King getting criticized for causing rioting and property damage. And then just a few years ago, Black Lives Matter uh, protesters getting criticized for causing rioting and property damage instead of people paying attention to the actual thing that's being protested. But so the ANC gave way to the NDP. It was banned. And that led to ZAPU, uh, which then split in two. And ZAPU and ZANU are the two that lasted. In 1963, Mugabe was ZANU's secretary general. And obviously over the course of 17 years, he moves up the ranks. But ZAPU and ZANU lasted, and uh, that's the end of chapter six, but just as an, you know, a, uh, a coda to this chapter, they lasted because they basically were like, all right, we're not going to be banned. It doesn't work to play within the rules of the government that's oppressing you. What works is to disobedience or to, to partake in social disobedience until um, you force the government to accede to your demands. So that's essentially what chapter seven is about. So chapter seven starts out with the unilateral declaration of independence. The name of the chapter is the unilateral declaration of independence and the African response. Um, they declared independence, but with an apartheid government. And the world responded with sanctions, and those sanctions were poorly enforced. And so, as a just brief overview of this time, what happens is is that a lot of countries, African and otherwise, say like, "Oh, what what Rhodesia is doing? Awful uh, sanctions!" And then like you know, turn turn their uh, turn the other excuse me, just ignore them, and then. Five minutes later, going, you know, actually, we do need to trade. And some countries were hamstrung. Uh, Professor Mlambo points out that some African countries simply had to trade, had to do business with Rhodesia, or they wouldn't be able to um, survive. But there are plenty of countries that didn't have to, that kept trading. So that's one of the reasons why this period of unrest, if you want to call it that, uh, this war of independence lasted so long from like 63 to 76. It was poorly enforced sanctions that didn't hit home until, you know, years dragged on. And then uh, also because ZANU and ZAPU were fighting. They were actually going out and doing guerrilla uh, warfare. And that forced Rhodesia to spend a ton of money on their military. And the combination of countries eventually sanctioning, like actually sanctioning Rhodesia, and that guerrilla warfare eventually wore the Rhodesian government down and also like forced their allies, obviously, you know, South Africa into being like, okay, 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 okay. You've got to resolve this. This is bad for business. But so uh, a couple of interesting things about this chapter, because that, that's the main part that this chapter goes through. It's not to me, you know, super interesting. I like the setup of 53 to 63 better from 63 to 76. There's really not, any like major battle or something. It's really just a war of attrition. And so he does give this great statistic where he says, uh, between 75 and 76, the Rhodesian economy registered an average annual decline in GDP of 2.3% in real terms, 
compared to an annual average growth rate of almost 7% between 71 and 74. Real per capita GDP market prices fell at an annual average of 6.9% from 75 to 78. I'm not going to pretend like I know exactly the differences between uh, per capita GDP market prices and uh, GDP in real terms. Those seem like you know specific things, but I think we can all agree that your GDP going down is bad. And I'm only emphasizing this because in that article, which was criticizing Mugabe, who, again, is not without criticism, but, you know, it was talking about how GDP had declined. Well, here GDP is declining too. And, you know, oh, Mugabe caused the country to have sanctions put on them. Well, here the country had sanctions put on them too. Now, I suppose if I was a white Rhodesian or white Zimbabwean, I might say, well, you know, actually these sanctions in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, and this uh, this falling GDP, those were also the fault of Mugabe and um, his cohorts and the other black leaders and the Africans in general. They caused that by, you know, fighting when they could have just been happy. So um, that, of course, is dumb. But, you know, I, I guess you could... You could say that too. But anyway, the point is being that Mugabe gets criticized. He should get criticized for human rights violations, of course. He should get criticized for, you know, mismanagement or whatever. But uh, the concept of just like, oh, he, he had sanctions brought against him or the GDP uh, fell. Well, you know, when white people were running the country too, that happened as well. I guess you could counter with the thing I just said, though, that you know, that was caused by black unrest. The counter to that would be, you know, why why was there black unrest? What was the reason? So anyway, uh, that happened, and uh, this war of attrition dragged on, and it was bad. So it drained the economy, the GDP, GDP fell, and then there was the human toll. So by 1980, there were thousands of Zimbabweans who had fled the war and were living in exile in neighboring countries. It is estimated that up to 20% of the country's population, 1.4 million people, had been displaced by the war and were living in refugee camps in Botswana, Mozambique, and Zambia, among other countries in Africa and abroad. An estimated 400,000 peasants had fled the countryside into the cities and were crowded in makeshift shanty settlements in the country's major urban areas. So there you go. That's the human toll. So... You know, those stats that I was looking at before, it's just very interesting with this context. That's why the context matters so much, because um, what was happening before 1953 wasn't great. And then in order to rectify that situation, Zimbabweans banded together, formed political parties, and eventually came to the conclusion that we're going to have to take up armed resistance to get our way to get independence, you know, which didn't come to 1980, which was, I just briefly looked it up, and I believe it was like one of five, one of the five latest dates of decolonization on the continent. So that happens, and during that time, people are displaced, GDP drops, sanctions are levied, and so it feels kind of audacious for that article to write like, oh, can you believe what Mugabe did, ran the country into the ground? Uh, I'm again, he's not without criticism and we're going to get to that and that's next week. But the fact that that article was written by a white Zimbabwean using, 
I would say cherry picking stats, or at least not like taking a a large enough view of like where Africans had come from in the first place, black Africans or black Zimbabweans had come from in the first place, because that's my point. Like from the time of the pioneer column until 1953, and then from 1953 to 1980, and then from 1980 to 2000 and whenever Mugabe died, I think it was 18. Those almost need to be evaluated as three separate chunks. I mean, not almost, they definitely, and maybe there's more chunks in there. And you really have to say like, yeah, like for instance, you know, the life expectancy of the country dropping that we really would have to look at for whom is it dropping, you know? Uh, And we'd have to look at immigration patterns and all this other stuff. And so at the same time that we criticize Mugabe, we should also be criticizing the people who are running the country from, you know, 1900 to 1980, but especially 1953 to 1980, when other countries around the world were saying like, oh no, you should, um, you should cut this out. Like, this is bad. You're doing a bad thing. Like, we don't agree with this. We're still trading with you because we're hypocrites and we just care about money, but still what you're doing is bad. And eventually even like South Africa being like, hey, what you're doing is bad. So um, I just think it's like an interesting, an interesting contrast. Mugabe eventually, because, you know, I think for most people who don't know much about Zimbabwe, we just go like Mugabe, bad. And then, yeah, we all know that, you know, there was difficult times before decolonization or right around decolonization. But we don't exactly know all of the stories of each African country and their path to decolonization. And Zimbabwe's is such a specific one that I feel like it's just really hard to talk about Mugabe and in my, in my uh, example, life expectancy without all this other context around it. So the book has been fantastic for that, you know, Professor Mlambo really laying out this case I mean, it's not a case that everybody writes with an agenda, but I feel like he's just really laying out like, here is what happened. Mugabe hasn't warranted much of a mention throughout the book so far, uh, except to say that he was in ZANU and he was, you know, eventually going to move up the ranks. So um, it's not like it's some pro-Mugabe book. I'm sure when we get to the next section, there's going to be plenty of Mugabe criticism. And I'm really interested to see how he handles that. So, yeah. So anyway, okay. So, uh the war of attrition continues. There's the sanctions. There's the guerrilla fighting. Um, oh, Professor Mlambo kind of takes a little departure here and goes into a discussion of protest, uh, protest art, non-black people who were in the protest movement. Uh, he discusses Pan-African support again. He talks about uh, Kwame Nkrumah again. thought it was a little weird. He kept mentioning Tanzania, but not Julius Nairi. And I, I want to look more into that. Like when I read up on Nairi, I know that he was very much in favor of um, the whole Pan-Africanism movement and he was, you know, a proponent of Africa for Africans. And the book even mentions that Tanzania was was there, but it really puts a lot of emphasis on Nkrumah and doesn't really mention Nairi by name, I don't think at all. So kind of interested about that and why. So I'd like to, you know, read up on that a little bit more. But so, yeah, so, so. Professor Mlambo does that for a few pages, you know, 10 or 15 or so. And then we hop back in to the Lancaster House Agreement. This is basically both sides saying, like, 
all right, it, we have to bring this to an end. Of course, you know, the big difference here is that Zanu and Zapu and the third party who I'm forgetting, they were always willing to bring it to an end. They just needed to get what they were, you know, rightfully deserved. So the most interesting thing here about this Lancaster House situation and what uh, Mlambo, Professor Mlambo puts in is like the last, I think it's almost literally the very last thing he puts in this chapter. So that's why I said it was the through line. Um, he puts in this BBC article, which was talking about uh, the Lancaster House Agreement and how it almost didn't come off. So the first sentence is, the land issue has always been a motive in Zimbabwe. Then it goes on for a little bit, and then it's quoting uh, Lord Carrington, and then it quotes uh, Sir Shadrath, um, who was the Commonwealth Secretary. He says, when Nakombo and... Mugabe saw it and understood the implications they blew up. They asked Carrington what he meant. The struggle was about land. Was he saying to them that they must sign a constitution which says that they could not redistribute land because if that was the case, they should go back to the bush? And so um, the Commonwealth Secretary, uh, Sir Shadrath, he, he thought the conference was doomed to failure and uh, he thought Mugambi and Nkombo would walk out and civil war would resume. And so uh, he, uh, he took some initiative and he secretly contacted the U.S. ambassador in London, Kingman Brewster, and he asked him to get the president on the phone, who was Jimmy Carter at the time, and uh, to promise to give money to pay white farmers for the land. And Brewster was to totally supportive. He said, we were at a stage where uh, excuse me, this is uh, the Commonwealth Secretary saying, Brewster was totally supportive. We were at a stage where Mugabe and Nakoma were packing their bags. Um, he came back to me within 24 hours. They'd got hold of Jimmy Carter, and Carter authorized Brewster to say to me that the United States would contribute a substantial amount for a process of land redistribution, and they would undertake to encourage the British government to give similar assurances. That, of course, saved the conference. And that's where this thing ends at chapter seven. So you can see how much about the land this really is. And I mean, really, this is the best part about Professor Lombo's book is that he goes through each chapter and he gives you all the factors. You know, we started out talking about World War II and Pan-Africanism and Marcus Garvey and the AME church and uh, elites abroad and elites inside of the country and all of these different factors, but it keeps coming back to the land and it's not, I mean, yeah, okay, that's that's the narrative he's pushing, but I don't think that he's forcing it. I think it's pretty apparent that that is the, that's the case. So, um, yeah, I'm interested in the next, you know, chapters. I believe there's two more chapters left. I'm interested to find out one, how re how redistribution went poorly, and two, you know, how Mugabe transformed the country and how he transformed as a leader. So. I'm interested to see, you know, Professor Mlambo's investigations into those things. Yeah, this was very interesting. Um, a little bit tedious, I would say, if we're just talking about writing style. Like chapter six, chapter five kind of uh, was better, um, the Federation years. Chapter six was a little bit more tedious, and, and especially at the end there where he started talking about protest art and white leaders, or excuse me, protest leaders who were non-black. I don't think they were all exclusively white. But, um... When he got into that section, you know, it became more just like listing 
people than writing. So, um, yeah, it was a little tedious there, but the Federation years in particular were fascinating. And yeah, there were less stats than the earlier chapters. Like basically all of the stats and tables and charts and stuff happened in the first, you know, four chapters. And, and I was looking at the index and there's basically none left for the rest of the book. So the, from now, we're just going to get more of like, uh, you know, more like a traditional history book. I feel like history books aren't usually front loaded with so many facts and figures, but I, I feel like Professor Mlambo really wanted to get it across about the discrepancy in, um, in land and resources. And I think that's why I think, I mean, if you're going to say there's an agenda or an, I would say more like a narrative, but whatever, it's that showing that here's why the, here was the, um, the inequality. Here's why it led to independence movements. And here's how those independent movements, independence movements happen. Now, of course, I don't think that anybody really needs Professor Mlambo to prove to them that Zimbabwe had a right to govern its own country. Black Zimbabweans had a right to their, to govern their own country. But it's still great that he's doing it because it's just got so much evidence. So that's been really great. I think that's going to do it for this week. I'm going to be back in two weeks. Knock on wood. Not actually going to knock on wood. Uh, but I'll be back in two weeks with the end of this book. And then after that, back in a month with some kind of fiction book. I'll put out a, a schedule in, in the next podcast of the books I'm going to read this year. And yeah, the intro music and outro music is by The Keep Running. Um, if you want to read about the couple articles I wrote on Zimbabwe, a couple blog posts I wrote about Zimbabwe, you can check the show notes for those. Please subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, whatever you got. Pocket Casts is the one I use. And that's going to do it. Until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>